Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. It's a podcast where we summarize modern medical legal threats to doctors in 15 minutes or less. The goal is to allow you to continue practicing great medicine with peace of mind. And I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical and Dental Justice, an organization dedicated to protecting physicians from frivolous lawsuits, internet libel, unwarranted demands for refunds, and a gazillion other medical legal threats. I'm joined today by my co-host, Mike Sakopoulos, who serves as our organization's general counsel. Glad to have you with us, Mike. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. If you're joining us for the first time, here's a quick rundown on our organization's history and objectives. Medical justice has been protecting physicians from frivolous litigation since 2001. Since inception, we've worked with over 12,000 doctors. We've seen a lot and we've learned a lot. This podcast exists to share this knowledge with you so you can take steps today to protect yourself from the forces that want to prey on you, your practice, and your livelihood. Okay, now let's dive into the topic of today's episode. Dr. Siegel, if you'll do the honors. Great. So this continues our series of the most frivolous lawsuit competition. We had uh, put forth this competition about 10 years ago and received many, many, many submissions from physicians, how they were on the receiving end of a nasty letter um, and case from an attorney. We decided to run that exact same contest again, expecting just to get a handful of submissions and to our, I guess, pleasant or unpleasant surprise, we received scores of submissions. And the purpose of the podcast, the earliest podcast that we're putting forth, is to revisit some of these uh, cases and to see what lessons are learned. And here is actually a two-four. It's actually the same type of case, uh, but they, they propel two separate lawsuits. And I'll just read it uh, directly from the, um, from the doctor who submitted it. So... These cases stem from the compounding pharmacy fungal meningitis outbreak. I believe the compounding pharmacy was called NECC, and this made big news several years ago and ultimately um, was, um, was, uh, re was reviewed as a New England Journal of Medicine article. Um, the pain management physician was using the hospital surgical center who, who insisted on using this vendor, NECC, despite recommendations that there were other quality local pharmacies, uh, which the doctor trusted and had used for many years. So in this particular case, the doctor had nothing to do with the selection of NECC as the vendor for the institution. Um, in addition, uh, the doctor never, had never used compounded methylprednisolone, and this will become uh, important later, which was the steroid that was tainted with a fungus in the 500 plus cases that actually occurred. So just as a lead up, the doctor had no choice in the selection of the specific compounding pharmacy. Number two is that the tainted compound was methylprednisolone, a compound that the doctor never actually used. Okay, so while, po while both patients did receive medications that were produced by the NECC pharmacy, neither drug or batch of steroids was, was ever implicated in the cases of the fungal meningitis, and this is according to the uh, Center for Disease Control. Nonetheless, both patients sued claiming that the, they developed fungal meningitis. So the first patient 
um, was one to two months status post anterior cervical discectomy and fusion for persistent nerve root pain, and he was referred for epidural steroid injection. This patient developed headaches and other vague, nonspecific symptoms one to two weeks after the injection. Um, Right at this point, the NECC story was just breaking. And while the patient um, had not received the implicated steroid, he was having unexplained symptoms, and, um, and the doctor knew his steroids had actually come from NECC. So he was referred to an infectious disease doctor. A spinal tap was performed and was ruled to be negative, and all cultures were also negative. His cerebrospinal fluid was, was sent to the Center for Disease Control for analysis, who yet again agreed the patient did not have fungal meningitis. Yet despite the lack of evidence that this patient ever had meningitis, the doctor was sued for causing the patient to, um, to, to develop fungal meningitis. Um, this, the judge eventually dismissed the case for lack of evidence. Unfortunately, this little journey took approximately two years. So the second patient for the same doctor was a chronic pain patient who had a variety of cervical and lumbar problems. She received the same steroid as the first patient, uh, to recap, a steroid not implicated in any of the fungal meningitis cases, uh, but again produced at the compounding pharmacy NECC. This patient was informed of the fungal outbreak, as were all of the patients, totaling 83 in his practice, who were exposed to any drug from the pharmacy just out of an abundance of precaution. Um, and the patient then, immediately after getting this letter, uh, began to develop unexplained symptoms. She had a spinal tap, which was negative, and she later claimed that the fungal meningitis, which she actually never had, caused her to, to develop lupus. Now, try and follow and connect the dots on this story. Um, anyway, this case was filed in Superior Court and went on this one for three years, and the rheumatology expert who was supposed to testify, connecting all the dots, uh, never materialized, and eventually... Uh, the judge had had enough of the plaintiff attorney stalling and dismissed the case. This was over three years. So what are the lessons learned right here? I think the, the first lesson is that a scared patient will find an attorney. Not too long ago, um, a surgery center sent notice to about 3,000 patients that they may have been exposed to hepatitis C or HIV and recommended that they, that they come in for testing. Um, of course, you know, those who get negative results from those tests will be relieved, but even that cohort will have their lives upended for the brief window of time that they believe they might have been uh, infected. Uh, further, such cases often have false negatives and may need to have uh, repeat testing. Um, and of course, if the index of suspicion is high and the amount of time elapses short, then the question is, do you give prophylactic medications for something like HIV? And then how do you counsel family members for these patients? Business as usual, no, um, no relations between uh, husband and wife. I mean, this opens up the door to, to a thousand questions. And since I've just opened up the door to a thousand questions, that's Mike's cue to jump in. <laughs> okay. So you can imagine when these letters go out, <clears throat> you have upset patients, but you also have attorneys out there that look at this as an opportunity, right? So out come the pitchforks and torches, and we're going to, to march on, on a practice. So, and 
you know, sometimes it could be justified, but, but here we have a situation where no harm was ever done. It's almost a reverse placebo reaction, right? Um, it's in their mind and, and they, they think that they have. I, I'm sure that they actually felt like they did have some kind of uh, problem as a result of this, even though they did not medically. So how do we, how do we deal and, and where do big, big problems uh, come from? Well, one area that's a little bit different than this, but has similarities are privacy breaches because that involves letters to large number of people about a common problem that they may or may not have. And you need to be careful because your med mal coverage will most likely not extend to privacy uh, violations, or at least not fully, and will certainly exclude class actions. So you want to make sure that you have appropriate coverage. That would be in the, uh, in the cyber arena uh, for those um, somewhat related type of, uh, of matters. But we certainly have a lot of other things to, to discuss here, and these oftentimes relate to management of a bad situation that was caused by someone else. Dr. Mm-hmm. C, would you, would you agree that, that that's kind of what we're, what we're up against here, right? This was somebody else's mistake that the providers left uh, trying to deal with. Yeah. Now, just imagine for the moment that we change some of the facts in the story. And let's say that his two patients did get fungal meningitis because of a batch of medication that the doctor had absolutely no, no say in causing, meaning that Yes, he chose, he chose a particular surgery center, but he wasn't on the committee, um, which would ultimately determine which vendor or which pharmacy stocks their pharmacy. And I think this puts the doctor in a very difficult situation. How far back in the supply chain does the doctor need to go to confirm that all of the um, goods uh, and materials and pharmaceuticals that are being used um, are okay. I mean, there, it's certainly a reasonable assumption that if a pharmacy in your surgery center is stocking a medication, that it's good to go. And what do you think? I mean, how? I mean, I know why the doctors who in, in the patients that ultimately developed fungal meningitis um, were, um, you know, why attorneys were trying to hold them liable is because these doctors had a professional liability policy and could pay money. I think the challenge for the plaintiff attorney was holding the compounding pharmacy liable because they quickly ran out of cash, filed for bankruptcy, and their, uh, the people who um, oversaw their organization were on the receiving end of criminal charges. So it, it really did become a matter of follow the money. But, you know, what point is a doctor responsible or liable for use of particular um, devices or pharmaceuticals that they may have zero control in choosing or picking. That, I think you're, you're exactly right. To the extent that they're dealing with a licensed uh, pharmacy um, and, and licensed individuals there, it would seem that that's the whole purpose of having licensing is that you can rely upon their, their credibility. We can't investigate every last person or for that matter, um, and other other providers in the in the chain, right? We have to can only go uh, so so far. Let's to, let's let's do something a little less exotic, but one that could be be problematic with with medications. Let's say that you're given samples uh, sample medications, and they're to be kept uh, kept refrigerated, 
right? Mm -hmm. um, but you really don't know what the chain of the, the chain of these coming into you. They come in refrigerated, mm -hmm. but it could have been uh, left in, in somebody's uh, mailbox, some drug rep's mailbox, God forbid, um, and had been warmed up for a while before it got put back in the refrigerator. Are you, are you responsible for distributing things that um, are beyond your control or things that happened outside of your control? And there's similar type of issues. And I think that we just have to impose a reasonable standard on this. Are you getting uh, samples or uh, pharmaceutical products from someone that is uh, reputable? Look, there are cases out there that absolutely say you can't circumvent U.S. law because it's a better deal to bring these uh, pharmaceutical products in from another country because you can get them for less money. Um, so don't think that you're going to um, do an end run around the U.S. pharmaceutical industry uh, by getting uh, products, uh, their products that were produced elsewhere at lower deals and importing them yourself. The FDA does not look kindly upon that. Um, <clears throat> but you, you do need to, um, to have some, some reasonable uh, standards on these if you're dealing with pharmaceutical products. It, Dr. C, would you agree with all that? I think your point is a strong point, which is, did you reasonably rely upon the third party? Was your reliance upon the third party reasonable? And we do that all the time. Um, we can't know every facet of medicine. So if we're scratching our heads trying to figure out what's wrong with a patient in the ER, what does the emergency room physician do? He calls a specialist. It could be the gastroenterologist. It could be the neurosurgeon. It could be an orthopedic surgeon. And if, um, if that particular person blows it for whatever reason, then can everybody be sued? And I think that in most cases, as long as the ER doctor has found a reasonable person uh, to to, um, to continue the diagnostic process or even treat the patient, then his duty has been discharged. He has done what is reasonable. That ER doctor in this particular example uh, can't be held to be liable for every action of the specialist unless his or her selection of the, um, of the specialist was unreasonable. So what might that be? So let's assume that the specialist was not credentialed for uh, doing a particular procedure and the and the um, referring doctor knew that that would not be reasonable if the doctor that um, you referred the patient to had um, i don 't know been sued twenty five times in the past and had lost every case uh, for and, and the reasonable assumption was that person's not the most competent person and there was a you know a better choice then that might not be reasonable but for the most part if you um, reasonably rely upon a third party to make a diagnosis and perform treatment, then you're mostly off the hook. And in this particular case, um, reasonably relying upon the pharmacy to stock its shelves with, um, you know, appropriate medications typically would be the get out of jail free card. What do you think? I, I, I think so. Um, but beyond being reasonable, I think that you also need to be cautious in this day and age with uh, your your RX uh, pads, because we've had a number of cases where physician staff members were stealing blank prescription pads and um, you know writing opioid prescriptions falsely. So 
lock those up or, or, or keep good track of them because that's a way in the pharmaceutical world to get in trouble without actually uh, doing something yourself, having your staff uh, steal something or even a, a cleaning crew, God forbid, somebody in after hours. So be careful with those uh, RX pads. Absolutely. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336 358 5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.